Support comes from Adelaide Interiors. Their design team can expertly manage every detail of your renovation and remodeling project from start to finish. From bathrooms to kitchens, appliances, cabinets, countertops, flooring, and coverings. More at Adelaide.com. Support for The Zest comes from People's Gas, delivering clean, efficient, and affordable natural gas for cooking at home with precise temperature control. More at floridasenergy.com. He is a player at that time. He is, <laughs> you know, he's to Jesse Jackson. He's a Stokely Carmichael. You know, he's the Martin Luther King of that time. And it is a very important time in U.S. history, the Harlem Renaissance. I'm Delia Colon, and this is The Zest. Citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and Southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. This week, we're delving into the role food played in the life and work of Jacksonville native James Weldon Johnson. Whether you're hearing that name for the first time or it rings a bell from history class, buckle up for a fascinating conversation. James Weldon Johnson was a man of many talents. Born in Jacksonville in 1871, he was a writer, lawyer, civil rights activist, and a key figure in the Harlem Renaissance. He also wrote the poem, Lift Every Voice and Sing, which today is known as the Black National Anthem. It's been recorded by everyone from Ray Charles. Lift every voice and sing, tell it in heaven. To Beyonce. Here to shed light on the importance of food in Johnson's life and work is Dr. Frederick Douglass Opie. He's an author and professor at Babson College outside of Boston. You may remember him from our conversation about the foodie life of another Harlem Renaissance-era Floridian, Zora Neale Hurston. Today, we'll learn how Jim Crow laws affected what James Weldon Johnson ate and how his eating habits were influenced by his time as a diplomat in Central America. We're so happy to have you here today to talk about James Weldon Johnson. Can you just give us the Cliff's Notes bio for people who don't know? When was he born? Why are we talking about him on a Florida food podcast? He's born in Jacksonville, Florida, 1890 or 1884, one of the two. He's notable for a number of reasons. But as a native of, of Florida, there's a couple things that he is the co-author of the Negro National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing. He was an editor for The Crisis, which was the paper of the NAACP. He was a U.S. ambassador to Nicaragua, Panama. The man did everything. I mean, he really was, when people talk about a Renaissance man, he was. Uh, His book, The Autobiography of the Next Colored Band, is still in publication. The book came out at the turn of the century. I wish one of my books would stay in publication that long. 
and my kids would use the royalties to do great things as, as they lived their life. So there are, there are so many, you can hear my voice, just excited I get about talking about James Weldon Johnson because he really is a model of how to live life well and have the greatest impact on people around you. I mean, that's, that's the best way. So if, if I were a native of Florida, I would be pumped up to know this person came from the same, same territory. Okay, so let's talk about food. This is the Zest Food Podcast. When is the first time that food really starts to play a role in Johnson's life? Johnson has an autobiography that he writes. And early on, you get a sense that food is on this man's brain. Like the first mention you get it is when he leaves home. So he attends a very notable school in Jacksonville called the Florida Baptist Academy. It, it, it is the Morehouse type of prep school or the Spelman because it's co-ed. But imagine a prep school that's like Morehouse College in Atlanta or like Spelman that's right across the street in Atlanta, but it's in Jacksonville. And at that school, he attends with his brother, but also people like Zorno Hurston and a bunch of other very you know, well-known folks who went on to do great things. After he graduates that school, he gets on a train and leaves Jacksonville to make his way to Atlanta University. This is at the height of Jim Crow. And he discusses the experience of his mother, who did what so many other African-American mothers did then. And I can even say that my grandmother would do, even as I was a child, which was to pack a lunch in a shoebox for your child that lunch more often than not would have fried chicken in it, a hard boiled egg, a slice of cake, maybe some celery or carrot sticks. And you did that. So your child would eat without having to endure the indignities of when the train would actually stop and you could go into a, a train depot and buy food. But during his time, that would have been Jim Crow. It would have been humiliating the way they treated you. So to avoid that, People who love you would pack these shoe boxes. So he talks about that during his train ride. That's the very first mention that he gets. Now, what's interesting about the autobiography is that he also, the, auto, the autobiography and his most noted book, The Autobiography of the Next Colored Man, they're almost biographical because there are similar scenes that he describes in The Autobiography of the Next Colored Man that are also in his own life. He also is a, he's a very light-skinned, complexioned African-American. And as you can imagine, the autobiography of the next colored man is a story of a man who is so light in complexion that he could actually pass as white. So I see it first in his autobiography. When he gets to Atlanta University, then there's discussions about where him and some of his classmates will go to get something to eat off campus. And there are these elaborate discussions. You, so you see it throughout the autobiography, whether it's when he's in Central America as a U.S. Uh, ambassador, he's talking about the food there. So he, he's got this interest in food that would make him a perfect food writer, or in, in my case, the perfect person to read his autobiography, because that, that content is throughout his work. Tell me more about attending Atlanta University. What kinds of discussions, you know, when I was a college student, the discussions about getting food were like, how many tacos can we afford and who's going to spot <laughs> me for this? So what kind of discussions was he having back then? So he would have the similar discussions that some of us would have, which is 
you're in college, your parents had to bust their butt for you to get there and for you to, to stay enrolled. And then you try to find the best food you could eat outside the cafeteria because most times cafeteria food wasn't good. That was the case at Atlanta University. And just outside the gates of the Atlanta University are all kinds of mom and pop restaurants in the historically black community. Certainly different than when Johnson went there, but there were enough places. And there were people who operated boarding houses. And the boarding houses would be places where students might stay or just where they would go to get a meal. So a lot of the discussion is you're a freshman or first year student, upperclassman or schooling you on, where do you go off campus to get some great food where it's not a greasy spoon, where it's healthy. And, I, and I, I'm, I'm hearing my, my wife and my mother-in-law who is in uh, Lakeland, Florida, by the way. And my mother-in-law who is a great cook is very particular about whose house she will eat at or what restaurant. And so a lot of that discussion with those students is, all right, the food is good, but is it clean? Is it safe? (laughs) So that's a lot of the discussion. Can I afford it? Is it good? Is it safe? What do you mean, is it safe? You're talking about the early 20th century where a lot of the things that in terms of refrigeration, preserving food, food going bad, and trying to keep yourself. So as the entrepreneur selling that food, you're going to sell everything you can, even when it's at the point where it may be expired or starting to go bad, you might throw some more great tasting spices in it to hide that rancidness. Then you also have the people buying the food where they're like, it's just healthy. You hear a lot of stories, including if you remember a discussion with Zora Neale Hurston, of stomach problems. This is quite frequently discussed uh, within literature of the same time period. So clean, clean meant was a person preparing the food clean? Was the food healthy? Was the food uh, still safe to eat? So this would have been like 19-teens, early 1920s. It's just interesting. Yeah. Okay. My stepdaughter, Ariel, is uh, getting ready to graduate college and she's 22. And it's so strange. I don't see her and her friends having top of mind. Is this clean? You know, it's more like, is it free? Can I afford it? So it's just a totally different time period. Okay, you you kind of quickly uh, summarized his career as an ambassador, but like he was in Nicaragua and Panama. So talk to me about that and and the food that he might have been experiencing down there. I can't imagine a black man. I don't know what time period this was because he lived, you told me to be like in his 90s, but a black man going down to Central America... Go back to his beginnings in Jacksonville. He lived in an area where there were regular migrant workers working in the cigar rolling um, industry in Jacksonville. This is before the Cuban Revolution in 1959, where this is really an interesting part of, of his life and his work. There is a vibrant cigar making industry in Jacksonville, where there are factories dedicated to this. And Cubans and African-Americans move within an African diaspora between Jacksonville, Cuba, the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico. I mean, these are areas where people just kind of evolved and moved and spent time there as migrant workers. And when the Cubans came, particularly the dark-skinned ones, 
they boarded at boarding houses run and operated by African-Americans. And they often worked in the same spaces at these cigar rolling factories. Again, this is something that you see even when you do a study of the, the Negro Leagues, that African-Americans and dark-skinned people from Cuba and other parts of, of Latin America had a lot of interaction, a lot of uh, exposure to one another. And so he grew up around that, learned Spanish at a very young age, probably studied again when, you know, at the uh, Florida Baptist Academy, and then continued to study it uh, when he got to to Atlanta University. So he graduates with a degree and he's also fluent in Spanish. And he, his family among black folks are very connected. And a lot of the, the politicians, whether it be governors or presidents, they still needed, even though, the, you know, certainly not all of African-Americans in the South were voting, there were places where the black vote was important. And so there's, there's some kind of connection that he decides early on he's going to apply to the State Department and he gets his position. The main reason that he gets this opportunity in Central America, which is so unusual for an African-American to be an ambassador at this time, is his language skills. There were very few people who had that kind of control of the Spanish language that he did. So he goes, I, I can't remember, I think his first post is kind of in a backwater of the Caribbean coast of Nicaragua, and he's there for a certain amount of time. And he's just talking about, you know, what are people eating, the rice and beans, beans and rice, the plantains, it's just all the kind of local cuisine he's describing. Where this all comes from, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if his mom ran a boarding house or a relative did, but there's something that he's just interested in all his life. And the pictures that I have of James Weldon Johnson as a young man, and even as an older man, He's never overweight, so he's one of these guys that may love food and eat food, but it never gets the best of him. Again, he's, he's in Central America as an ambassador roughly between 1913 and 1917. It's like, you know, a four- or five-year period, as you can see, and it's right after graduating from Atlanta University. He gets a promotion, and that promotion is to go work as uh, in the as a in the council in Panama. Let, now, for those that are listening, what's going on in Panama and Central America the same time that James Wells and Johnson is going there? The construction of the Panama Canal. So this is a hot spot for American geopolitical control of that area, and it's also important to remember that. United States gains control of Panama because Teddy Roosevelt essentially creates a war in which United States annexes on behalf of the Panamanians who are uh, U.S. leaning. The United States annex helps Panama annex that, that land, that the Panama Canal, that territory from the Colombians. So this is what's happening at the same time. And the, there were several attempts to build the canal, but they were failures. Uh, the most recent one before the United States came in and helped build the canal was the French. And the reason why the United States is able to, to build a canal is the Rockefeller family. The Rockefeller family is investing in research to stop ma malaria. And that's the reason why it was, it was mosquitoes and malaria that kept the French from actually building the canal. So the Rockefellers invest all this money. The United States helps annex uh, the Panama Canal region from Colombia. 
and U.S. investment is rampant there. It's it's really expanding, and you have all of these Jamaicans, Haitians, Barbadians, all these people from the African diaspora in the Caribbean who are brought in as cheap sources of labor to build the railroads and build the canals. And it's an important position as a counselor official. And that's why he's there. So he's, I mean, he's there at, it's like being in New York when it is booming and busting. That's what Panama is. It's a great position and he's able to watch. You also do have African-Americans who are there working from the South, working to build the canal zone. So it's, it's one of my favorite times in history and places in history because so much is going on there. And in terms of food, there's the Panamanian food culture there. There's the historic influence of the Colombian uh, food there. And then there's the West Indians. So when you're in Panama, you're eating tamales. You're also eating things like, you know, chicken patties, beef patties, all that kind of stuff, rice and beans. And you're also eating fried chicken, some of the influence that comes from workers who come from states like Florida and the other parts of the South. Mm, that sounds like a great potluck. What yeah. happened after he left? Let's, let's kind of summarize the end of his life. Did he stay in Florida? Uh, so after he gets out of the State Department, he eventually makes his way to New York right at the time of the Harlem Renaissance, you know, so 1920s in that time period. And he is a, an important figure in the Harlem Renaissance as an author, as we mentioned, uh, the autobiography, The Next Colored Man. I mean, that put him on the map in terms of literature, but he also, it's, it's the time of the forming of the NAACP. So he works very closely with W.E.B. Du Bois, and I believe he's the first editor of the Crisis Magazine. The Crisis Magazine is the forerunner of Jet and Ebony. It's what every Black person is reading to be in the know about the rights and advancement of a movement to ensure the protection of your rights as a U.S. citizen. So it's in everybody's mailbox at that time. And he's the editor-in-chief of the crisis. So he's, he's got a really big role. Uh, we mentioned he writes the, the, the Negro National Anthem. I don't know any other way to say it that he is a player at that time. He is, <laughs> you know, he's the Jesse Jackson. He's a Stokely Carmichael. You know, he's the Martin Luther King of that time. And it is a very important time in U.S. history, the Harlem Renaissance. Why do you think we don't hear more about this? He's a native Floridian. He's a player at that time. Why don't we know this history? I've always known something about him because I grew up in a house in which my father and mother were old-time race people. And the context of that doesn't mean they were racist. It meant you were an African-American who knew your culture and history. And if you grew up in a house like that, like I did, you knew of the name and you knew the song and you were aware of who wrote the song. So I think within African-American communities, if you grew up in a community in which your parents were, were Garveyites, uh, members of Marcus Garvey's United Negro Improvement Association, or like my, my mom, my mom was a recruiter membership recruiter for the NAACP. So she was an activist-minded person. And if you grew up in that, in that environment, I would even say if you grew up in the church, you probably were aware of who he was. 
I think as time has gone on, particularly as the transition went from civil rights to the early to late 1960s, the emergence of black power, it's best to say that he was more of a conservative. He was, he was not a radical like Garvey. He was more of a conservative. I mean, there were other left of center radicals during the Harlem Renaissance period. I'd say in many ways, uh, Invisible Man author, Ralph Ellison, Ellison. is left of center of, of so they're, they're, they're relatively contemporaries, but Ellison is left of center versus, you know, even W.E.B. Du Bois moves more to the left than Johnson. Johnson is pushing for his people, but he's not calling for a total destruction of American capitalism. He's calling, and I think Marcus Garvey in, in many ways, Garvey and him agreed in the sense that Garvey is a cultural nationalist. He's calling for, for black folks to radically see themselves differently culturally. But when it came economically, Garvey's calling for capitalism, but black capitalism, like Booker T. Washington. Uh, James Weldon Johnson is calling for capitalism, black capitalism. Versus, if you look at Ralph Ellison, if you look at W.B. Du Bois, they move left of center. And as we transition from the civil rights to black power, I mean, I would even say towards the end of Dr. King's life, uh, one of the reasons why he's assassinated, because he moves from just not only the beloved community, but feeding the poor and not seeing a capitalist system able to meet the needs of the poor. Unless something radically changed, he didn't see that happening. That position of moving left of center and challenging the validity and the capacity of capitalism never happened among James Weldon Johnson. And I think that may be one of the reasons as black power activists like Stokely Carmichael, H. Rap Brown and other folks, they didn't look to James Weldon Johnson as somebody that we should keep talking about because they didn't see him as radical enough. The Panthers wouldn't have talked about him. The idea of the Negro national anthem Remember, black power folks were not calling for the, the term Negro to them meant too conservative. They're calling for black, African. That's not the kind of terminology that James Weldon Johnson proposed as the editor of the crisis, nor do you see it in his literature or his speeches. You're fighting against Jim Crow. You're fighting against white supremacy, but you're doing it in a way that later advocates of black power would consider you conservative. Isn't it funny how those, uh, it's like a sliding scale. Over time, somebody who seemed radical becomes conservative or vice versa. As we wrap up here, you said that a lot of people didn't see him as someone we should still be talking about. But obviously you do, and I do, which is why I invited you to have this conversation. Why should we still be talking about him? What do you see as his legacy today? I think he documents a period of American history that uh, we all have to know, particularly when you think about some of the white supremacist activities that go on now. I mean, there's, there's a, a scene in the autobiography of the ex-colored man in which the protagonist is in, I think it's right outside Macon, Georgia. And he, unawares, walks into a town where a lynching is being organized and happens right in front of him. Like he's boarding in a house. He's a boarder at a house. And all of a sudden he hears this commotion in the center of the town. And he kind of pulls up his shade a little bit to see a lynching mob is mobilizing and a man is lynched and he watches all of this. I mean, 
we, we see similar things happen. Actually, where I live here in the state of Massachusetts, there is an investigation that protesters forced the local district attorney to take up on a young black girl, six years old, named Michaela Miller, who was found in the woods in not far, the same town where the Boston Marathon starts, she was found in the woods uh, after being jumped the night before, reported this to the police, and then the next morning they find her uh, connected to a tree with a belt around her neck. It sounds like a lynching to me. I mean, so James Weldon Johnson is documenting these kind of things. He's documenting the good, bad, and ugly of his time period, turn of the century, up until the 1950s. And the fact that you have a book that a college professor like me is using and expresses all these things, not only is he covering life for African-Americans during his lifetime, but the Autobiography Next Color Man spends quite a bit of time over in Europe where he gets to see the experience of black expats living in Europe. It is a fascinating description of life and then add to that, if you're into food, like me and you are, there's this, all this documentation of what people are doing, including the scenes in New York in which he's eating at some of the first Chinese restaurants that exist at the time. So it's just the stories of the speakeasies during that time, I guess you would almost call speakeasies, the clubs that are there. And he's documenting also the experience of you're light enough in complexion, or what my students call today colorisms, you're light enough to assimilate into white society, and then you have to make the decision to do. So the protagonist is the offspring of a wealthy white Southern family, and the relationship that happens between one of the, one of the older children, like college-age children of this wealthy family, and the white domestic servant who's a teenager. So this is this is the discussion. And, you know, how do you how do, how do you deal with it as a family when something like that happens to a white wealthy family? How do you deal with it? And how do you deal with it as the black woman who's in this love affair with this man who has power and money, but refuses to accept who you are and the child that you sired? I mean, it's just so much there. That still goes on now, as, as my wife likes to say. I, she, she coined this term, so I'm going to give her credit for it. The protagonist, is she calls it, ambiguously black. You can't really tell who he is. And I challenge your, your audience to look at the TV commercials that are happening now. For the first time, you are seeing these commercials in which, if it's a couple, it's usually a, a black man with a white spouse or it may be an ambiguous looking woman, as my mother say, a woman that's got some fly in her buttermilk with a white man. And then they have <laughs> children that look like this. So many these things that we're seeing happening in terms of marketing and on the TV, he's talking about at the turn of the century. How were those people treated? What, what jobs did they have? What kind of acceptance did they have by white society? What kind of acceptance or rejection did they have by black society. It's amazing. Mm, I'm going to think about that. Cause you're right. I've been seeing a lot of those commercials with like racially ambiguous families, which is great, you know, um, mm -hmm. and great for those actors. Cause they're like, do you want me to be black? Do you want me to be Hispanic? I can be whatever you want. Just to wrap it up. If we were going to prepare a meal 
in honor of James Weldon Johnson, what would that meal be? I think I would take a meal from his experience in Panama. And during the holiday time in Panama, I have a black Panamanian friend that I knew quite well. The tradition was to make um, tamales. And these were Afro-Panamanians of Jamaican descent that would make these tamales, just tons of tamales for Christmas. So I think some tamales uh, with um, rice and beans, or as some folks say, depending on your audience, rice and peas. And then I think you got to have a, a patty, a, uh, Jamaica, I just call them Jamaican patties, a patty on there. And then a smoothie made with some coconut milk and some guava juice. And then you got to have for dessert, I think you go for some, in, in Latin America, they call it pan de nuez, which is just pecan pie, a small miniature one. Now, if that doesn't make you salivate, you need to go talk to your doctor. I feel full just hearing the description of that meal. Thank you for that. Well, Dr. Frederick Douglas Opie, it is once again a pleasure to have you on. Always fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. It was a delight. That was Dr. Frederick Douglas Opie, always a treat, discussing the foodie life of Jacksonville native James Weldon Johnson. If you missed my conversation with Dr. Opie about the foodie life of Zora Neale Hurston, you'll definitely want to check it out. It's in season three, episode two. You can find a link in the show notes or on our website, thezestpodcast.com. I'm Delia Colon. I produce The Zest with Andrew Lucas. This week, we had help from Chandler Balcom, Mark Hayes, and Lily Tyson. The Zest is a production of WUSF Public Media, copyright 2021.